0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by InvestTech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator slash innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.
1: Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue of the magazine. This week, we'll hear from Douglas Murray on what monkeypox tells us about humanity, Lionel Shriver on almost being thrown out of South Africa, Julian Glover on the battle for the countryside, and James Bartholomew on why he's buying a tank for the foundation of the history of totalitarianism. First up
0: is Douglas Murray. I hate to be one of those columnists who says... I told you so. But I told you so. Looking back this week through the vast underground vaults at Spectator HQ, I see that centuries ago, in April 2020, I explained the problem with us humans as a species. As I said back then, someone always shags a monkey. There are almost eight billion of us on this planet today, and the likelihood that we're all going to make judicious decisions all the time is vanishingly small. The mating decisions of the species alone are notoriously prone to trial and error. And the entire future of our species rides perpetually along this cliff edge. Last month, I read in the Indian press of four men arrested by police in the western Indian state of Maharashtra. Their crime? Going on footage collected from their mobile phones. The men in their 30s and 40s stand accused of gang raping, killing, cooking and eating a rare monitor lizard in one of India's most protected nature reserves. I found the headline on this article to be of the kind that draws you in. So I read on. At one stage, I learned from the forest officer, Vishal Marley, that the four culprits seemed to have committed their crime for fun. There was, we were reassured, no religious or black magic agenda. On balance, I think it would have been more comforting if there had been. If the men had been acting under the delusion that raping a monitor lizard would give them better teeth or larger penises, then at least we could have put it down to one of those superstitions that can be argued out of our species over the course of centuries. But these men did it for pleasure. What are the survival chances of a species that does such things, I wonder? We have only just begun to come out of the wretched Covid era, and the world still seems none the wiser over whether the cause of that two-year-long misery was a bat-eating Chinese man or a perfectly innocent leak from a top-secret bioweapons lab. Who is to say? And now along comes Monkeypox. At present, there is already a familiar culture war over the origins of this apparently species-leaping virus, for the recent European outbreaks appear to have occurred in insufficiently diverse spaces. Specifically, they have arisen at a pride event in Gran Canaria and a gay sauna in Madrid. Although nobody seems certain over whether the pox is sexually transmitted, it does seem that close proximity to other people in a crowded environment may be a factor of some kind. The government agency that tracks these things already says that the dominant groups affected so far are gay and bisexual men. Of course, no sooner are these facts brought to light than the backlash begins. So far as I know, no one has yet suggested that we round up all the Spanish gays and put them in a detention facility until the virus is contained. Our age specialises in the opposite type of backlash, the outrage at a lack of inclusivity backlash. So various celebrity GPs, WHO officials and others are already out of the starting blocks, insisting that the monkeypox is not a gay disease. One Yale epidemiologist said this week, the answer isn't to shut down all these parties, tell gay men to stop having sex at them or dancing in close proximity to each other. To which one might say... Well, no, that isn't necessarily the answer, but it may be a good idea to tell gay men in the Madrid area that they ought to lay off the circuit parties a bit until we've worked out what is going on. Surely, it should be possible to talk about public health without fearing cries of homophobia or accusations of shaming. But nothing is that simple these days. A study into a 2017 outbreak of monkeypox in Nigeria said that it could be sexually transmitted. So maybe we are here again, as we were with AIDS, though hopefully with a far less serious virus. Still, there will be the same problem now as there was in the 1980s, a fear of identifying any particular at-risk group due to worries that if said group are identified as being especially at risk, then the public will instantly turn on them. There may be some societies where that could be the case, but I should like to think that in societies like ours, we might be honest about the spread of a virus and able to avoid pogroms. Yet, as with the origins of Covid... It seems we cannot be trusted with the facts. The Chinese wet market theory was fed to us for months because it was strangely less embarrassing than the biolab theory. And if you remember back to those early days of COVID, left-wing politicians were trying to encourage us to all hug a Chinese person to overcome the stigma of what was coming out of Wuhan. I don't know if we are going to be encouraged to hug people who have just emerged from the saunas of Madrid, but I would like to think we might have a more judicious approach this time. Who knows? There are already claims that the monkeypox came from the same Wuhan lab as Covid, in which case I would suggest that we unilaterally nuke the place. Other people claim that the pox may have come from one of those carnal relations of the kind outlined at the beginning of this piece, in which case someone in Madrid has some explaining to do. Either way, it would be nice if we could be trusted with the facts, because it looks like viruses like this are going to keep happening, which itself gives rise to a sad thought. When I was growing up, we saw the future as one of ever greater connectivity and ever wider travel. Today, that seems as hopelessly off track as the contents of tomorrow's world. For while the interconnected world has its advantages, it also makes us all a few plane rides away from whatever carnality our species is capable of. This Vast open world turns out to be claustrophobic, too.
1: That was Douglas Murray. Next, it's Lionel Shriver.
2: On my 2pm arrival for a week-long work trip to South Africa a fortnight ago, an immigration agent flapped my passport while inquiring as to the purpose of my visit. To appear in the Franzschuk Literary Festival clearly meant nothing to this woman. But, hey... Whitfests aren't exactly Glastonbury. I only grew, shall we say, concerned when she announced that because my passport lacked two sequential, completely clean pages, she was denying me entry to the country. You're kidding me, I said, quietly. I didn't shout. Yet this reflex expression of disbelief was all it would take for the entire team of Cape Town's gatekeepers to blackball me as a reprobate with a bad attitude. "'You think I am joking you?' the official said indignantly. "'I strike you as an unserious person who tells you things just for making fun?' This huffing went on for some time, though it was amazing I could hear her from that high horse." Pointing out multiple pages with plenty space for their small visa stamp only made matters worse. I was ushered to a chair on the sidelines while the hall emptied. By 3 p.m., another female official with long braided hair extensions informed me snippily that I was now booked on another 12-hour flight back to London at 7 p.m. I could appeal to the U.S. Embassy for a new passport if I liked. But wouldn't the embassy be in Johannesburg? I submitted meekly. At this intolerable impertinence, the official threw up her hands, exclaiming, It is true! You are impossible! Hair extensions flying, she flounced away. Clearly, anything out of my mouth, down to have a nice day, would only dig my grave deeper. My jazz drummer husband claims my main problem is not having a Compliant Vibe. Every modern adventure requires a techno meltdown. I'd turned off my sad 2014 iPhone before takeoff, but mustn't have swiped fully across because the battery was kaput and the phone wouldn't turn on. Connecting my tablet to the free airport Wi-Fi involved the usual doom loop. The iPad could not be emailed the confirmation code if it wasn't online to begin with. Meanwhile, my publicist awaited at baggage claim, doubtless frantic because one of the festival's headline authors had neither communicated nor shown up. None of the officials ignoring me had any interest in helping me contact the outside world. Only thanks to a kindly British Airways agent, did I finally send my publicist an SOS. Gears began to grind. It took hours, one of which I wasted completing an application for an emergency passport as advised by the Cape Town U.S. Consulate, only for said consulate to insist that I had to apply in person with passport photos, form printout, passport and cash, another doom loop all impossible, from the wrong side of immigration. My sole hope lay in political string-pulling by the honchos who ran this upmarket festival, wheel-greasing unavailable to most travelers. To my embarrassment, I later learned that getting immigration to relent had entailed the urgent intercession of more than a dozen influencers, the real kind. Finally, I was led before the towering Afrikaner in charge, obviously irked that higher powers had intervened. The other officials had treated me throughout like a criminal. This guy treated me like a naughty little girl. I was allowed in the country only on the condition that I acquired an emergency passport, since the unnecessary documents served no other purpose. Levying a punitively time-consuming ordeal was obviously the intent. Trying to sound eager to obey, I said in my most subservient voice, Yes, I've already filled out the application online. The staff said you were rude, he boomed. They are right. You are rude, rude, rude. Go figure. I came within a hair's breadth of being sent back to Heathrow for an insensible infraction. South Africa learned bureaucracy from you Brits and, like most of the continent, has embraced Picayune eye-dotting with a vengeance. Remember those classic British traits identified in our last column? This incident exhibited three. Pettiness, obsession with rules for the rule's sake, and looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Beyond the crack-high of exercising capricious authority, barring my admission would have accomplished nothing while appreciably damaging one of the country's major cultural events. Already out thousands for my airfare, the festival would have had to refund hundreds of tickets to my three appearances. Big win. To an extent, this experience was typically South African. Given the country's traumatic history and all that straining to take offense, it's hard to resist the impression that race was a factor. One more uppity Karen had to be taught that white folks were no longer in charge. Perhaps we shouldn't blame black South Africans for taking revenge where they can, but 28 years into majority rule, I did. Otherwise, fickle pedophagery and a demand for cowering, docile obsequiousness are common to security and immigration in airports everywhere. My tale of woe elicited others, such as being held in detention at JFK for 12 hours because an Irish passport didn't have a barcode. As my short story, The Chapstick, observes, airport officials are deputized with the kind of petty power that's especially horrifying because it isn't really petty. They can make you miss your own wedding. They can keep you from being present at the birth of your grandchildren. They can guarantee that you won't see your father one last time before he dies. The lesson Maybe don't visit South Africa, although once I had been none too graciously allowed in, the wine, food, and landscape were great. All the non-immigration people were great, too. Maybe always travel with a practically blank passport, which, now that the UK passport agency takes months to process applications, if ever is hard to arrange. Or maybe don't fly anywhere. But had I stayed home, my lovely publicist would never have seized on our meme of the week, which grew more delectably subversive with repetition. You're kidding me.
1: That was Lionel Shriver. Next it's Julian Glover.
3: Our age isn't the first to set an English landscape of our dreams against the one which actually exists, or see earning a living from the land as something base and destructive. The tension has always been there between people who work on the land and the utopian dreamers for whom every mark of the plough is a scar. Farmers bristle at talk of countryside utopias and rewilding, and passionate wilders can't see why the land managers do things which they think are harmful to the land. Both groups complain about being misunderstood by the other, all the while failing to spot that the much more profound threat to the countryside comes from those who don't care about what happens to it at all. The national forest in the Midlands, like the NEP estate in Sussex, which has become renowned as the birthplace of British rewilding, has come to stand as an icon for the positive possibilities of change. Having spent time in both and met the people who have shaped them, I think that's fair, but we can't use them as easy answers for every difficulty to do with the state of our countryside. There are good farmers and bad farmers, and farmers have often been the product of bad public policy and the pressure to produce cheap food. That can change, and is changing. Take Lee Schofield's heartfelt new book, Wild Fell. The strapline on the front cover, fighting for nature on a Lake District Hills farm, sums it up. All farming isn't toxic. Even rewilders wilders should be able to admire the survival of the cultural tradition of the Herdwick sheep farming in the Cumbrian uplands. Read Schofield and make up your own mind. His story of managing the land around Haweswater in the eastern fells is compelling. By taking the pressure off the fells, with fewer sheep and none in places, plants such as bog myrtle, valerian and devil's bit, scrabius, which ought to grow feely, stand less chance of being chomped by livestock. I can remember walking at once in northwest Scotland and crossing into a patch of mountainside fenced off from deer, which was alive with flowers and insects, and the contrast with the grazed land outside was like moving from black and white to full colour. Schofield wrestles with the implications of what he is doing for the farmers who make up his local community. He'd like them to understand he's not against farming, just the way farmers have come to behave, after subsidies encouraged them to fill the hills with as many sheep as they could find. It wasn't like this a century ago, he says, and he's probably right. But something he doesn't mention stands out from the examples of good practice he sets out, such as Haweswater or Ennerdale in the west of the lakes. Haweswater was stripped of its population by the Manchester Corporation when it dammed the valley in the 1930s for a water supply. Ennerdale, never much populated, was wrecked by the Forestry Commission around the same time. These are not classic farm landscapes full of people. Change here is easier to organize or impose because of it. Bringing about natural recovery alongside farming in other parts of the lakes, let alone all of England, can't be done by decree. It's going to take concession and compromise and moderation and accepting failure as well as success. And these are not fashionable views in politics now or on social media. We're much quicker opinionizing about the fight over the countryside now takes place. It's easier for strident campaigners to put a picture of a dead buzzard or an unhappy-looking cow on Facebook and clout the clicks of the outraged visan followers. Schofield ends his book with a description of how he would like Horswater to be in 2045, when, he hopes, he will retire. It's an idyll every bit as seductive as the ones set out by Shakespeare or an English landscape painting. The sheep are taking advantage of the shade beneath a large spreading oak. One of many that stud these fields. A pied flycatcher darts into a hole in one of their broad trunks. A beak full of grubs for hungry chicks. It's what I'd like to see in 2045 too. Who wouldn't? But the question is how to get there. Spending time both with the Lake District's farmers and with conservationists made me realise we all have far more in common than divides us, he writes. The desire to become a farmer or the manager of a nature reserve is driven by the same things, a love of the outdoors, passion for a place to which we are connected, and the desire to shape it and steward it. To that, some farmers might add, what he misses, a sense of respect for the traditions of what they do and pride in doing something else which feeds everyone. These sheep on those hills exist to be shorn and eaten. Conservationists would do well to understand this better and talk about it, as some, such as Prince Charles, do. In return, farmers should admit that not all of them are good guardians of the land, or even good at their job, as the sad sight of a lane running with water mixed with raw slurry not far from where I live suggests. But that means not taking sides.
1: That was Julian Glover. And finally, James Bartholomew. Buying a tank is
4: not as easy as you might think. When we started looking for one, people delighted in telling us, ''Oh, you should have bought one in the 1990s. There were hundreds available for practically nothing.'' Well, not any more. Especially not if you're picky about what sort of tank you want. I'm collecting artefacts for a new museum of totalitarianism and wanted a T-54 or two T-55, two models which are pretty much the same as each other with just a few alterations, and which are the most produced tanks in history. They were used by the Soviet Army to crush the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. They were deployed to curtail the Prague Spring in 1968, when Czechoslovakia, as it was, sought to transition to a gentler form of communism. And a Chinese copy of the T-55 was used in 1989 for killing student demonstrators in Tiananmen Square, who were seeking democracy and a free press. The T-54, T-55 is an historically important tank. It's a measure of man's brutality, a tank which tells a story of oppression. Naturally, it would have been easiest to buy one from a British dealer, but we were quoted north of a £100,000, and even at that price, one of the dealers announced that he did not really want to sell it all. He got so much money renting it out to the Ministry of Defence, he said. Why the cash-strapped MOD is spending thousands renting obsolete tanks is a mystery I haven't unravelled. To save our donors' cash, we started looking for a tank in Central and Eastern Europe. We were warned repeatedly about the possibility of being fleeced. There is apparently enough of a demand for old tanks for there to be untrustworthy dealers here and there, but eventually we decided to do business with a man in the Czech Republic who was offering a working T-55 for €80,000, around £68,500. Working means a tank that can be driven, which helps if you want to get it from one place to another. I flew to the Czech Republic and, accompanied by a Czech speaker and his assistant, drove to a city in the west, Karlovy Vary, once known as Karlsbad, famous for its spas. The spot specified by the dealer turned out to be a vast, empty wasteland, with a few industrial buildings round the edge. There was no tank to be seen, and nobody to meet us. But just as it began to feel like a spy movie, the scene in which the heroes are ambushed by gangsters, a car appeared. It crossed the concrete, drew close, then a big man inside it said, ''Follow me.'' So we did. Out of the city, along a highway, then on to a side road and from there on to a dirt track. We passed a gate with a sign saying it was a military area. No entry. We followed the car, deep into a forest. Finally we reached a clearing and some run-down outbuildings. Other tough-looking men were already there. They opened a garage door and there, at last, was the tank. I walked towards it, trying to exude the air of a man who knows a good tank when he sees one. I climbed up, got inside, and quickly discovered that the first thing you want to do when you get into a tank is to get out of it. It was claustrophobic, with metal bits and pieces getting in your way, and an uncomfortable seat. There were actually three seats in there, one for the commander, one for the driver, and the last for the gunner. Naturally, I wanted to see if the tank worked, but this proved tricky. There were a few clattering noises from the engine, then it fell silent, and then again, and yet again. Finally, after about half an hour, it came fully to life, belching black smoke. The driver installed himself and the tank erupted backwards out of its parking space. We zoomed around the tracks, through the forest, and I loved it. I had to stop myself grinning like a boy with a new train set. A couple of weeks ago, the tank was driven up onto a trailer and we paid up. I worried that both the tank and the cash would disappear, but all seems well. As I write, the tank is on the docks at the vast, bleak-looking port in Bremerhaven. It is due to be loaded onto a seriously big ship, 176 metres long, and make its way to Portbury, near Bristol. It will then go to a registered workshop to have its cannon deactivated. The most effective museums, like the House of Terror in Budapest, create an appropriate atmosphere. The first object you see when you visit that museum is a tank looming at the bottom of an atrium. It is raised at an angle on a dark surface and surrounded by high walls covered in black and white photographs of people who were killed in the two terror campaigns, first by the Nazis and then the Soviets. We aim to create the same atmosphere of harsh, uncompromising menace. We need to raise a great deal of money to build our museum and the tank explains why it's needed better than I ever could.
1: That was James Bartholomew. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these ones. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week.